Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. Hey, we are starting a new series today. New year, new series. There it is. We decided to go uh, we decided to go big. Divine narrative. What does that refer to? Well, it refers to the Bible, the whole Bible. Why, why go small if you can go big? So, uh, and what, let me uh, clarify a little bit. This, this guy is, as you probably know, 66 books written by multiple authors, multiple cultures, over 3,000 years in the making. And if you were, you know, just somebody being introduced to the Bible and you were given that information, I'm sure most of us would say, that has got to be one complicated, diverse book with many different messages and themes and all of that. Well, the point of uh, our series for the next few months is to consider, is it possible that this really is a divine narrative, that this might be a common thread narrative that God is presenting to us, even with the idea that it's multiple authors, cultures, millennium in time. Because uh, I think you'll get excited seeing as we walk through the familiar stories and characters, you'll see how God has common threads that indicate that maybe he's the one who directed multiple authors and cultures to share a narrative about himself and how we might relate to him. Um, so that's kind of the theme of where we're, where we're headed uh, kind of excited about that. Uh, first question we got to ask, though, is how, uh, back up a minute before we get into it, how do we or how have we, should we be reading this book? And that's a really important question. Uh, two common ways that this book is looked at. One would be kind of like an owner's manual. Probably heard that illustration. I know when I was in college, that was one analogy given to me. Hey, this is your owner's manual. This is your instruction book. When I run your car well, you get your owner's manual. This, that's what the Bible is. You know, you read it, got all the instructions for life, all the answers. That'll tell you how to, love, how to live life. And some of that is true. But it, that's not why the Bible was written. The Bible is not intended to be an instruction manual. It's not intended really to be a wealth of information. It, this is less about information as it is about transformation. And so we have to look at this differently than maybe we look at other books. Um, that, that's number one. Number two, a uh, way that it's been looked at is, is literally. A lot of people would say, hey, uh, in fact, you've probably heard this phrase before. Maybe not, but hey, the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. That's kind of a simplistic way that some people have looked at and present the Bible. Hey, you just read it for what it says Believe it, that's, that's it. And some of that might be true, but most of that is really not true. Um, and two, one thing that kind of unifies those two ways of reading the Bible, why we get it wrong or not complete, it wasn't written to us. This book, this 66 books, was not written to 21st century America, uh, not to the Western Greek mind. This was written as we already said, to different cultures over thousands of years. But primarily it was written to an Eastern culture, uh, Eastern 
uh, to, to a Hebrew culture. And unless we understand that, unless we understand that it's not written to us, then we're going to miss a lot. Uh, we're going to miss a lot of things as we try to read it. Uh, analogy I was given a number of years ago is, let's just say this room, this church body represents the story God is telling, this Sunday service. And, uh, but we can't be in that room because it happened a long time ago. But we do have a look into the room. But let's just say I am looking at it from one of those narrow windows in the back of the room from one of the doors. Maybe I'm standing over by the, the well counter there and I'm looking in. Is my view true, what I see in the room? Yeah, for what I can see, it's, it's accurate. But it doesn't give me a very complete picture of what the room represents, what the room is uh, representing. Um, I would have to have a much wider view. Because if I'm looking from back there through one of those narrow windows, I don't even know there's a sound component to this. I don't know that there's people on cameras. I don't know a lot of what goes on on that side of the room. All I know is there's people up front. They're playing music that I can't hear. Maybe I can't understand. Uh, maybe that's telling a story. But, uh, but that's a narrow, a narrow view uh, of what's going on. One way to look at that, uh, I, I do want to... If we're going to read this and read it effectively, we do have to understand uh, the filters that we have, the biases that we have when we step into this, into this book. Um, I already mentioned the main thing I want to focus on this morning is the difference between our culture, our Western culture, our Greek culture, that's the world we live in, and the Hebrew culture, the Eastern culture that this book was written to. Uh, I'm just going to highlight six differences. There are probably 20 plus but these six will help us as we navigate. A couple of people mentioned after the first service, I'm going to actually have this printed out for next week. You can have a copy, just I think it's a good reference. But uh, let's look at the differences and be aware of our biases, be aware of our filters that we use to, to look at this. Uh, number one would be just the idea of numbers. Uh, again, our Greek Western culture, that seems like a <laughs> simple question. Oh, numbers, well, they represent the amount of something, you know. We know what 5 means, 10 means, 20 means. Uh, and it seems simple to us. It's quantitative. But in the Eastern culture, to the Hebrew culture, it's many more times it's qualitative and it's symbolic. It re- represents something. Um, maybe an example would help if you're looking at the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, full of numbers. You know, how, how many people are there? 5,000. We look at that and we're kind of thinking, well, is that men only? Is that men and women and children? How many? You know, we're, our Western mind wants the exact number. How many people were there? To the Eastern culture, it's representative because five, five represents the first five books of the Bible. When they, when they see five, they see the law. They see something very Jewish. Uh, and then there were how many fish or how many loaves? There were five. How many fish were there? There were two. Again, to us, it's like that's an exact number. We're hanging our head on that. To them, two is a number for prophets. So you've got a very Jewish uh, environment here. You've got five and two. You've got the law and the prophets. It's a complete picture. It's a Jewish picture. How many baskets were picked up? Twelve. Well, twelve happens to be representative of the twelve tribes of Israel. It's, it's talking about uh, completion. Five and two is, is the number for completion. It's like this 
God is, God is doing something very uh, specific, very complete. So it's a lot more nuance in the story than maybe we appreciate. Do, do, we, do we still understand the story? Yeah. But maybe we just have a narrower view of it. Maybe we don't appreciate all of what is trying to be communicated. Because there's another story just a few chapters after that where Jesus is feeding the 4,000. And there are seven baskets picked up. Well, also in the Hebrew language, seven and four, both references to Gentile uh, community and number. Um, and that's where that took place. It took place in the Decapolis in a non-Jewish area where Jesus fed them. That's just an example of how we read something and look at it differently than Hebrews would. So going down a few more little examples. One is just the use of words itself. Uh, our Western culture, very, uh, very specific. We uh, express truth through words, ideas, definitions. I mean, college, culture, school is all about that, transferring information. And how do we do that effectively? We do it expressing ideas, definitions. Our culture, we prefer outlines, um, lists, bullet points. Um, that's how you communicate effectively the information you want to give. Uh, in the Hebrew world, in the Eastern culture, uh, express truth through words, but more in pictures and stories. Words represent things. Uh, they're meant to tell stories more often. If you look at the New Testament, certainly the Gospels, Jesus spends much more time using stories, analogies, illustrations than he does giving people information. Sometimes that frustrates us. You know, it's like, can't you just tell us what you're trying <laughs> Give us the facts, just the facts. Uh, but Jesus spends a lot of time telling stories and parables and analogies, and that, that's a way that they communicate. So it's good to know that. Is, is how we read it wrong? Not so much that it's wrong, we just miss out on so much because we don't understand where it, it, it came from. Um, I will say this, when I, uh, time I, uh, it not only was it not written to us, I, I would say for the first 30 years of following Jesus, my my question when I read this was always, what is God trying to say to me? How do I apply this to my life? That's a good question. It's a valid question. I still use it. But now I look at it as maybe the fourth question, not the first question. Because the first question should be, who was it written to? How did they understand it? What did God try to express to them about who he is? Then after that, then I can say, how does that then apply to me? Because I'll miss so much of it if I just go directly to read this, go, oh, God, God tried to tell me this, if I don't understand the context uh, that it was written in. Uh, so that's really important. Um, keep going down. Uh, life, or kind of a broad term, more about how we live life, view life. In our culture, we're very individualistic. It's all about my rights, personal rights, personal preference, um, culture revolves around the individual. That's kind of our culture. So when you read the Bible, that's kind of how we tend to look at it. Uh, in the Hebrew world, life is more about communal. It's family. It's community. Um, they look at what they hear. How does that affect my community? How does that affect my family? Uh, that's the way they look at it. Uh, Prodigal Son's a great example. If you read that Using those two lenses, you come up with different things. Um, again, just a more complete picture by understanding that. 
A couple more. Uh, Next one is God. Again, Western, well, duh, God is, you know, we try to prove who or what God is. We try to define God. Uh, We try to say, hey, you believe in God? Well, how how do you know there is a God? Prove to me there's a God. And we spend a lot of time debating whether or not there is a God. In the Hebrew culture, um, they assume he exists. That's not, a, that's not an issue. To the Hebrew mind, the question is, how do we relate to God? Because he's there. He exists. That's a given. Uh, they don't spend time trying to define or try to prove who God is. In fact, I, <laughs> Jewish interactions we've had on a, our trip to Israel, that was a, kind of a revelation as how the... They just kind of look at us and go, why do you spend so much time debating who God is when the issue is how do you connect, how do you relate to God? Um, So, big one. Uh, Next would be uh, faith. Uh, And again, this isn't either or. It just affects us because I think both of these are true of some of our feelings. But for the most part in our culture, faith is more intellectual. It's more of a mental thing. What do you believe in? What's your faith? And we, again, like to express that in creeds and doctrines. Um, When we express what our faith is, we have a statement of faith. We have all these lists and definitions of what faith is. Um, It can be done apart from relationship. That's what I'm getting. In the Hebrew culture, in the Hebrew mind, faith is expressed in relationship. Faith is a result of my experience with God. Uh, If you ask... Somebody in that culture, what your faith is like, they will tell you what their experience with God is like. They're not going to give you a doctrine or a statement of belief. They're going to tell you what experience they've had with God. Um, and I might also say this, you can throw in that individualistic and communal thing, because faith, again, in our culture is all about my faith, what I believe. In and in Hebrew culture, it's about what the community faith experience or the family faith experience is, uh, frames their understanding. Uh, last one, we're going to go over it again. We could do it through 20 categories, but these are six really important ones. Truth. Uh, again, so <laughs> truth is truth. Uh, for us, it's static, it's unchanging, it's absolute. Um, and a lot of times you say, well, I, I know that's true. Bam. It's, uh, we define it. Hebrew culture, it's unfolding doesn't mean that it's not absolute or true. It's just from our viewpoint or from their viewpoint, truth is unfolding. My understanding of truth is growing or unfolding. Uh, there's much more room in there to say, you know, this is, this is what I believe to be true, and there may be more to it. Maybe God will reveal more to me, um, but truth is unfolding. Their understanding of truth is, is broadening, if you will. Uh, it's a healthy way to, I think, look at topics like that. So there you go. There's a, there's a little template. If we, uh, if we understand that, we understand maybe, maybe we'll look at the, at the book with a little broader view. Maybe we have a couple more windows uh, in our viewpoint. Um, I would throw into this as well just to how we're brought up, our traditions. You know, where do we go to church? Kind of frames our understanding of how we approach the Bible. Our doctrinal statements approach how we do this. Uh, just to be aware of those uh, helps us a lot. Uh, I'll use one example of uh, personal in my own life. I spent a lot of years looking at the Old Testament as 
in some ways, well, there are two gods. There's the God of the Old Testament, and then there's the God of the New Testament. You may have heard that. You know, the God, the God of the Old Testament, he was ruthless and brutal and judgmental. And, but then the God of the New Testament, who Jesus really embodies, that's a merciful, loving God. Um, you know, you got two stories. You got two, uh, uh, two religions. I used to look at it as two very separate stories and things. Now, because if what we're saying is true, if God is at work creating a narrative and he's using multiple people and cultures, then it's one story, it's one God. And we have to adjust our view, our look at what the Old Testament is saying and not try to change that to fit our cultural understanding, if that makes sense. So uh, that's one way to look at it. Uh, Again, my own Probably seven or eight years ago, this was a big part of my journey, being part of the Bema discipleship group that Marty Solomon had. Went to his classroom, and we did a lot of this. We, we just spent a lot of time reframing how I look at this. And for me, it doesn't it didn't mean my view of the, of the room was wrong. It just means now, it's, now I've got like six or seven windows. Now my view is a little more diverse. I still can't be in the room, but I think I get a better, more complete picture of maybe what God's communicating. Um, so that's, our, that's how we're framing this series, if you will. Uh, and now I, uh, at the end of that two years that I spent going through that look at the Old Testament mostly and then some of the New Testament, took our trip to Israel. And that became a whole different deal because now I, now I look at the Old Testament and say, that's my story too. They not, may not be my ethnic ancestors, but they're my spiritual ancestors. It's the same God. It's the same story. It's the same gospel. We looked at a couple uh, months ago that, you know, the gospel was really preached to Abraham originally. Abraham began what was God trying to communicate the good news. How does God want to relate to his creation? Um, so now I look at the Old Testament and I go, okay, once I understand how he's communicating to them, then I can apply it to myself. That's what we want to do uh, as we go forward. Uh, so there you go. There's our framework. We, uh, <laughs> we have a couple minutes. Uh, we're, we are going to dig in. We're going to just look at, and again, not an exhaustive look. That's not the point. But we're going to look at this story from the beginning, uh, Genesis 1. We're going to look at Genesis 1, 1 to 31. And I am purposely going to read it all in one chunk. That's a big chunk. But sit back, relax. Um, this, uh, I, just want, I, want it, I want you to hear it. I want to read it kind of more, have, receive it as it was written. Take off your blinders a little bit and just listen to the story and maybe think about it, how a Hebrew mind would look at this. So here we go. Genesis 1, 1 to 31. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void or empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let Oops, excuse me. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. 
So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. Let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land. And he gathered waters. The gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in numbers and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. Then God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. See a pattern here somewhere. And, uh, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds of the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has a breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So there's your story. There's Genesis 1. (laughs) Did you notice anything here? Do we notice? There's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of pattern. Uh, Just a few. There's evening and morning. It was good. 
times he separated, and then he filled what he separated. And I don't know how many times I'm, I should look it up because I think there is a key here. The number of times he used according to its kind probably fits the numerical pattern on the Hebrew mind. It's probably something like 21 times, which is 3 times 7, which is completeness and the trinity of God. Um, just little clues like that. This is a poem. This is not a textbook. It's not a science book. It's not intended to be a science book. Uh, you know, I, I, college, I was a science major, and that was always the, oh, yeah, well, how do you... Bible is just a bunch of fables. How can you, uh, how can you create the world this way? It doesn't make any sense at all. Seven days, ha, huh, can't happen. <laughs> now I kind of, I used to spend a lot of time trying to defend that. And I go, hey, yeah. Uh, now I don't so much. Because it doesn't, it, it's, again, it's not about transfer of information. God's not trying to tell us how he did something. He's trying to reveal who he is and how we can relate to him. That's his point in in his divine narrative. Uh, because what are the ways it doesn't fit? What are the problems in trying to make this fit our Western culture? God creates light on day one. Notice that right off the bat, first thing he does. Creates light, separates light from darkness. Whoa. He didn't create the sun and moons and stars until day four. So what is this light? You know, our Western mind kind of goes nuts. Cause that doesn't make sense. This is backwards. This is wrong. Um, same way, God creates plants and vegetation, but no sun until day four. Well, they can't survive unless they've got the sun to get photosynthesis. Or how long is a day actually? Because there was evening and morning, day one, but there was no sun to mark the day. There was no sun rising or falling. So how long? How was there evening and morning if there was no sun marking our evenings and morning until day four? Um, that would nullify that whole refrain. But it's a poem, people. It's a poem. It's God trying to make a message through repetition about himself. Uh, again, now I say, how many days did God create? I don't know. Literal days? I don't know. Could have been seven. God could do it seven days. He could do it in one day if he wanted to. He's God. Um, I don't limit what God can do. Now I kind of just say... Yeah, there's room for all sorts of things in there. Evolution, all those things. They can fit into this. It's not important to the story. Um, we don't defend our faith based on how it seemingly conflicts with science here as we read the creation story. Not the point. Um, well, what do we learn? <laughs> uh, what do we learn about God? I'll just wrote down a, a number of things here. Verse 1, God is creator. That's God's nature is to create. He's Elohim in the Hebrew. God the creator. Um, I, that's the first thing we learn. That's his nature. And how he creates is fascinating. How the Bible reveals God creates by his word, his spoken word. You know, we think of creation as something we do with our hands. We build things. We mold things together. God's a great sculptor. Not that he couldn't do it that way, but he, he just, I love the fact he speaks things into being. Let there be light. And there's light. Uh, there it is. That's, that's his nature. Uh, <laughs> he reveals in this, by the way, that one thing it does reveal pretty clearly is that God is not just one person. God is triune. Uh, there's enough hints in here. Uh, a hint where it says, let us make God, or let us make mankind in our image. 
clear reference to this not being a singular God. Uh, said the Spirit of God, Ruah, hovered over the waters. So the Spirit was involved in creation. Oh, okay. And then just that idea of the spoken word that God created by his word. And then we look at John 1. John's gospel starts with the words, in the beginning, God was the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And he goes on to say everything that was created was created by the word. And then he reveals that the word is Jesus. Uh, So here we get hints that there is something fascinating about this nature of God. He's creator, but he's also three different personalities, if you will, three different expressions as the same God. I'm not going to define that scientifically, but I'm going to see it for what it is. It's what God tells us. Uh, And then a big one is God is patterned. He's ordered. Uh, He sets things in motion, and there's a very distinct pattern and rhythm and uh, uh, to what he creates. Uh, if you notice, by the way, the first three days, even that's a pattern. Uh, I won't go into the old idea of chiasms in the Old Testament or different ways that authors use to illustrate points, but, but this is one of those. Because the first three days, he separates. He separated light from dark, day one. Then the next day, he separated the waters from below and the waters above. He created the sky. That was separation. He really didn't create it. He did more separating. The third day, he separates the land from the seas. There's dry ground and there's, there's seas. Then the next three days, he fills what he separated. Because the next day, the day four, he fills it, the, uh, the sky with uh, the lights, the sun and the moon and the stars. And then the next day, he fills the vault and the seas with uh, birds and, and fish. And then day four, he fills the land with what he's separated the land from the seas, and he fills the land with all sorts of living creatures and then mankind. Um, so that's just one pattern that's, that's in this poem. It's trying to tell us how not just creative God is, but how he is very ordered and, and has rhythm to what he does. Uh, and then finally, and this is really a, a cool one to me. I didn't really thought about that much, but God finished his creation. In Genesis 1. Uh, Genesis 2 1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. So God, uh, and I might also add, God created creation within his creation uh, according to its kind. That we're to multiply, we're to things produce, continue creating. But God was done, God was finished. He created everything he wanted to create and he finished, he stopped. It's not like he started then, does a little bit here, he creates a little more, oh, I better create some more things here. He completed his task then. And he said, it is done. And then he finally ends with, it is very good. He was done. Uh, That's what we find out, the points I wanted to highlight. And with that in mind, with with how God revealed himself in different ways, uh, I kind of want to end with, uh, this week with, what does it now tell us? What do we get out of this? What, what does it mean to us? Um, and I want to also say next week, by the way, we're, gonna, we're, we're not quite done with the, the week. We're going to spend all next week talking about day seven because that's a real key for how we relate to this God that's revealing himself. 
But here are, the, here are three things that I think we can highlight about what God's communicating. Number one, we are made in the image of God. And we may not know specifically what that means, but it, there's a lot in that statement. God made very clear, let us make mankind in our image. Uh, I don't know the fullness of that, but I think there's more to it than maybe we appreciate. He created us to be creators. Um, that's part of our nature is to create things. It's why we work. It's why we create things. why we're satisfied when we create something. Um, that's just one of the things. But we are, we're the only part of God's creation that has that characteristic that is like God in that way. Um, so there's, we, we can rest on that one. What's, what's the next one here? We are very good. Uh, we've, again, in our evangelical culture, a lot of times the, the story, the gospel story begins in Genesis 3 after the fall. It's like, this is where it really begins. That we're inherently bad. That God's trying to fix us somehow. Well, I got news. God made very clear, I'm done with creation. And after I created mankind, I declared, you are very good. On what basis were, was mankind very good at that point? It had absolutely nothing to do with Anything they did, they didn't have time to do anything or not do anything. They were very good because God created them that way. That's our nature. God created us, and he said, you are very good. We'll spend time in the next couple weeks talking about how we've messed up, but it doesn't mess up how God views us, how God relates to us. We are still, in God's eyes, very good. God doesn't wait for us to change so he can look at us differently. We are very good in God's eyes from day one to this day. We find lots of reasons to disqualify ourselves, but from God's viewpoint, we're the same. And lastly, this is just my own uh, little thing. If we create space, if we separate in our life, if we create open area in our life, guess what? God's nature is he'll fill it. God still wants to fill, wants to be in the business of working in our life, but sometimes it takes us. God couldn't fill things until, we, until he separated them, until he created space for things to be filled. And I think that's part of our nature as well. We want God to work in our life. We want to be filled with things in our life. We have to create space. We have to separate out some things so that God can work in our life. And that's a big part of what we're going to talk about next week. So there's the beginning of God's story the divine narrative. And I just want to say, uh, as we go on, there's kind of a constant refrain uh, that I want us to be aware of as we go through the next few months. And that would be this line, trust the story. Uh, I think that's part of the narrative of God through all of, certainly through all the Old Testament, but really the whole story is trust the story. God is telling a story. We may have a hard time understanding it sometimes, Sometimes it's hard to follow God and his story. But the key, I think, to relating to God is to trust the story. That's, that's the refrain that I think we'll be looking at over the next few weeks and months. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.